Tonight we're continuing our study of the prophecy of Isaiah, and uh, last week we started to look at just some introductory issues, especially more historical background issues. Tonight, what I want to do is just real briefly give kind of a, a flyover view of the structure of Isaiah. And uh, as we go along, obviously we'll get more detailed in that structure, but for right now, tonight, I just want to give us a bird's eye view of the whole book because it is a pretty big book and it's easy to get lost in all the trees of Isaiah. So I just kind of want us to see the, the big forest picture tonight and then also about four or five themes that recur throughout the book of Isaiah that I thought we would just reflect on for a few moments tonight. I provided this map. This is kind of going off of last week's study uh, with all the, the different nations that we were talking about last week. You can see there, I don't know if you can see it well enough or not, but there more toward the left-hand side, you can see Israel and Judah. And then Syria is right above Israel. And so we were talking about Israel and Syria forming an alliance together and putting pressure on Judah in the south. And then you can see up more toward the, the north and the right hand there, you see Assyria and how they're kind of uh, expanding. And everything in green there is kind of their territory around that time of Isaiah's life. And then there on the right-hand side, a little bit south, you can see Babylon, the city of Babylon. And uh, they're the next power that's going to kind of spread across that whole region after the time of Isaiah. So I thought I would just put that up there, kind of give us a mental picture of some of the things that we were talking about last week. But just a real brief flyover view of Isaiah. Really, chapters 36 to 39 are key to understanding the, the structure of the book. And what happens in chapters 36 to 39 is we have a little interlude between chapters 1 through 35 and then 40 through 66. And most of chapters 1 through 35 are in more prophetic, poetic type language. Same thing with 40 through 66, more poetic type language. But in 36 to 39, we have language that sounds very much like Kings or Chronicles. Just very much narrative, telling history, what's going on. And that kind of, that kind of grounds the historical setting for the whole book. And so what happens is in chapter 36 and 37, you have the defeat of Assyria, which Isaiah had been foretelling throughout many of the prophecies in chapters 1 through 35. And so 36 and 37 are kind of like wrapping up and, and showing that all of Isaiah's prophecies were true in chapters 1 through 35, in that Assyria did fall and suffered their defeat. And then in 38 and 39, you have a turn more toward Babylon and talking about Babylon and then Judah, to which Isaiah was mostly ministering to, Judah falling into Babylon's power and going into captivity in Babylon. And that, that prophecy looking forward is what most of 40 through 66 is about. And so you have 36 to 39 is kind of like this hinge between the two parts of Isaiah that wraps up the first part with regard to the prophecies about Assyria and then looks forward to 
the parts about Babylon and the fall of Judah to Babylon. So it's really important to see that, to see the structure of the whole book. And then as we kind of go back from that and look at chapters 1 through 35, and again, this is very broad. We'll look at these a little bit more in detail. But in the first chapters, you have kind of some opening messages and then the call of Isaiah in chapter 6. And then chapter 7 through 12 deals a lot with Assyria and uh, specific prophecies related to them, as well as some prophecies about the Messiah. And then in chapters 13 through 23, you have Isaiah kind of looking globally, at least in the region, looking around Israel and Judah and talking about God's judgment on the nations, such as Egypt and Moab and these other nations around them. And then in 24 through 27, you have kind of a great apocalypse, if you will, of of what is going to be coming down the road. And then you have a book of woes, and but also of restoration. So woes are like judgment, oracles, but there's also some pointers toward restoration. And then as I mentioned, we have this historical interlude in chapters 36 to 39, where we have the fall of Assyria, and then the rise of Babylon and the Babylonian captivity. And then the last part of the book, chapters 40 through 66, you see Isaiah not only talking about the fall into Babylon, but then looking even beyond that to restoration from Babylon. And then in 49 to 57, one of the great themes is the servant of the Lord. And in that portion, we have the great chapter, Isaiah 53, where we see the suffering servant giving his life for the Lord's people. And then to close out the book, chapters 58 to 66, as Isaiah concludes, it's uh, very revelation-like in the sense that Isaiah is looking way far into the future and about the ultimate blessings that are going to come in a new heavens and a new earth. In fact, much of the language of revelation talking about a new heavens and a new earth comes from Isaiah in these closing chapters. So that's kind of a a broad flyover of Isaiah. And so some of the main themes, if you read some of the pre-exilic prophets, and by that I mean the prophets who were ministering in the 800s, 700s, even the 600s, before the fall of Israel to Assyria, and then before the fall of Judah to Babylon, you, you see a pretty standard message. And so you'll see this pattern in Isaiah, but you'll also see it in Hosea. You'll see it in Micah. And this standard message goes something like this. You've broken the covenant. So the prophet comes as a mediator of God's covenant and says to the people, you've broken the covenant of God. In these primary ways. You see these themes pop up again often too. Idolatry, worshiping false gods, social injustice, just defrauding one another, mistreating one another, the rich oppressing the poor, not not showing love of neighbor. So social injustice. And then religious ritualism is a theme that pops up a lot in the prophets. And that is the idea of just going through the motions of We'll come to the temple, we'll offer a sacrifice, we'll, we'll do X, Y, and Z, but God knows their hearts are not in it. 
And, and the prophets talk about that frequently. So the prophets come and they say, you've broken God's covenant. So repent. But if you don't repent, then God's judging hand is going to come. And also God's judging hand is going to come on the nations, on these pagan nations because of their idolatry, because of their wickedness, and also because of the way that they've mistreated God's people. So judgment is coming. But in all the prophets, it never ends with just judgment. There's always a a light at the end of the tunnel, if you will, that points toward restoration, that, that points toward grace, that points toward mercy after judgment. And so the prophets will talk about hope beyond the judgment for a glorious future restoration, both for Judah and Israel. And you see this theme of a regathering of the people of God under a Davidic king, under a Messiah. But also those blessings can extend to the nations as those nations come under the shade, if you will, of the blessings of God on his people. So you've broken the covenant, repent. If you don't, judgment. But even in judgment, God is merciful. And there's a remnant that will be restored. In fact, speaking of that remnant, that's one of the themes that we see often in Isaiah. And the word remnant, sha'ar in Hebrew, is the idea of that which is left over. You can even think of eating dinner and having leftovers. That's the word that would be used in Hebrew to, to refer to that. It can be used to refer to the, the materials that are left over after a, a project. Uh, just whatever's left, the remains. But in, in Isaiah and some of the other prophets, they, ref, they use this word to talk about God's people. Specifically the ones that God is going to restore and bless in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem after the exile. So these are people of blessing. So theologically in the prophets, it refers to the faithful remainder of people, people that God has chosen to display his grace to, people who are looking to God to work his will in and through them. So these are people who have been blessed by God that will be recipients of his grace and restored to Judah and to see the blessings after the judgment. And so they return to the Lord and they experience the fullness of salvation that others do not. So they're, they're referred to as the remnant, a remnant of grace. In fact, you see this theme picked up by Paul in Romans 9 through 11, especially of a remnant that has been rescued by grace. And so that's a theme that comes up in Isaiah. Another one is the sovereignty of God. And really you could say that, that this theme is all across scripture, almost on every page. It's assumed that God is sovereign, that he rules over his world, that he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And that as sovereign, he's working. He's working in his world. He's guiding everything according to his purpose that he has established. And so you see in Isaiah, the authority of the Lord, the sovereignty of the Lord, when it says the Lord has spoken, almost as if the, the, that's a, a huge gavel drop. You know, the, the Lord has spoken, period, end of the matter. This is, this is the Lord's will and it will happen. And so Isaiah is speaking that word on behalf of the Lord. 
And so God's sovereignty we see in Isaiah, especially in chapters 13 to 23, those oracles to the nations, we see that God's sovereignty does not end at Israel or Judah, but it extends to the world. Whether those nations recognize God or not, the true God of creation, the God of Israel, God's sovereignty still extends to them and extends over them because he is their creator. And so even though Isaiah ministered primarily to Judah, he understood the universal sovereignty of God over all things and all peoples. And so one of the things he talks about is that many people from many nations will one day recognize that sovereignty of God. And while some never will, but God is sovereign regardless of whether they recognize it or not. But some will come and find God's blessing under the shade of grace that he has provided through his people. And so the sovereignty of God. Another theme that we see in Isaiah is the idea of a servant. And the idea of a servant is, it occurs frequently in Isaiah, about 39 times. And basically servants are slaves to their master. Their duty is to obey their master, to accomplish their master's will. And in Isaiah, this term servant describes, sometimes it describes God's people as a group. That is Israel or Judah is my servant. But oftentimes it refers to a special individual that is a servant of the Lord who will accomplish his will. And we know in chapter, especially the end of chapter 52 into chapter 53, that that special chosen servant is the coming Messiah, is Jesus. And he's the one that Jesus says in the gospel of John, I have come to do my father's will. So he is that servant. And the servant serves their master faithfully and so fulfill, fulfills God's will for their lives. The New Testament picks up on this theme of servanthood and it uses the Greek equivalent doulos some 122 times in the New Testament to refer to God's people as servants. And so you'll see Paul refer to himself as a servant of Christ. And it's interesting how in the Old Testament, the dominant phrase is servant of the Lord or servant of Yahweh. And yet in the New Testament, the dominant phrase is servant of Christ. And that's amazing when you think about, that's actually a very good argument for the full deity of Christ. That, that just, they can easily make this switch from servant of the Lord to servant of Christ. It's because Christ has the full authority of the Lord because he is the Lord God. And so Paul argued that slavery to God, we see this in Romans, for example, Romans 6, where being a slave of God is actually freedom. It frees us to live righteously and it frees us to live the way that God created us to be, to live in freedom. And so being a slave of God is actually to enjoy freedom from bondage, freedom from sin and its effects in our lives. So it's the idea of a servant, very prominent in Isaiah. Another one is the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. We see this phrase, this exact phrase, 31 times in the Old Testament 25 of them are in Isaiah. So you can see how significant of a theme that is when most of the uses of it are in this one prophet, Isaiah. And it probably comes from his call in Isaiah 6, 
where in Isaiah 6, he sees this vision of the sovereign Lord and his glory filling the temple. And the angels, the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That idea of the holiness of the Lord that, that impacted him in such a way that this became a, a favorite title of Isaiah for the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And you see it throughout the whole book. Interestingly enough, in chapters 1 through 39 and 40 through 66, which remember we were talking about authorship last week and how some divide the book between authors. It's interesting how phrases like this, key phrases, show up in all parts of the book, all across it, kind of showing a unity of of its composition. And so the Holy One of Israel, God is holy in that he is the creator. He is not a part of creation. He stands apart from creation and his people. And the Lord cannot look upon sin. And so his holy nature is opposed to the sin of his people. And he will judge them. But yet he loves them and he desires fellowship with them. He called to them through the law of Moses as well as through Isaiah and other prophets. And he called for them to repent and to return. And so God loved his people, yet he is holy. The expression holy one of Israel occurs in both judgment and redemptive context. So as Isaiah is giving a message of the Lord, if you don't repent, there will be judgment. He'll say, this is from the holy one of Israel. But also God's holiness Out of his holiness comes not only judgment, but also redemption. Because Isaiah will give a message of hope and of redemption. And he'll say, this is from the Holy One of Israel. And so God, the Holy One, is a God of justice, but also of mercy. The Holy One of Israel has experienced rejection from his people who have resisted his sovereign purposes. They've they've rebelled against him. They've, They've set their face against him. So he will judge his people, but he will also judge the nations who oppose him and his people. But the Holy One of Israel stands as Israel's Savior and Redeemer, and he delivers them from exile and establishes his kingdom. So the Holy One of Israel. And the last theme that we'll talk about tonight is the Messiah. Now, interestingly, this word, Mashiach, which is a Hebrew word, which means the anointed one. This word actually doesn't occur very frequently in Isaiah. In fact, only a couple of times. But the theme, the idea of a special chosen one is all through the prophecy of Isaiah. And when we talk about God's anointed one, this term throughout the Old Testament could be used of kings. It could be used of priests. It could be used of prophets. And oftentimes the idea of an anointed one is that when someone was chosen for a special role, they would be anointed for that role. And so, uh, for example, when the prophet Samuel was called upon to anoint David as the next king of Israel. So this anointing is the idea of choice, is the idea of God's choice upon this person and is calling that person for a special role in his will. And it, we, this term is used of Christ in the New Testament. He is the anointed one, the ultimate anointed one, right? He's the one who fulfills the ultimate purpose of God. But interestingly, in Isaiah, it's only used twice. And one of those times, it's not used of Christ, not used of 
the forward-looking Messiah, the New Testament Messiah. Interestingly enough, it's used of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in chapter 45, verse 1. So Cyrus, the king of of Persia, is called God's chosen one or his anointed one. And why is that? Well, probably because God, in his will, had selected Cyrus, even though he was a pagan king, God had selected him to be the instrument through which he would uh, accomplish his purpose of restoring his people back to Judah. So he is the one chosen by God for this role, that through him, he would bring his people back to their land. The Messiah is God's chosen instrument to accomplish his purpose. When we talk about Jesus, the ultimate Messiah, it is the one who will bring about God's kingdom. And even though the word does not occur regularly in Isaiah, this concept of Messiah is in many, many places throughout the book. So God's chosen instrument, he works faithfully to bring about God's earthly as well as his heavenly kingdom. And even though many prophets, priests, and kings carry this title of Messiah in the Old Testament, the New Testament points to Jesus, God's son, as the ultimate Messiah. And the Greek equivalent of Messiah from the Old Testament is Christ, Christos. So when we, when we say Jesus Christ, it's actually a title. Christ is a title of his role, of fulfilling God's role as the anointed one, the chosen one of God. And so as we'll see as we go through Isaiah, many of Isaiah's prophetic utterances point to this Jesus this coming Messiah. And we'll see it all throughout chapter seven, chapter nine, chapter 11, chapter 53, chapter 61. And that's just a handful. But Isaiah has these references to a coming servant, a coming chosen one, a coming anointed one. And they're all, these references are all throughout Isaiah. Now that's just a few themes just a few big themes that kind of pop up throughout the book. Obviously, there are many, many more themes that we'll come across, but these are some ones that recur frequently. And I thought it'd be helpful just to kind of see that big picture view before we launch into um, kind of a more chapter by chapter look at Isaiah.